Welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and vampire that time forgot, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm film scholar Noelle Croy, and it's safe to say that what I practice is definitely old agey. And we're here today to talk about Showtime, the 11th episode of season 7. Showtime aired on January 7, 2003, and was written by David Fury and directed by Michael Grossman. Still Pretty is a fully spoiled, full-spectrum Buffy podcast, so if you haven't seen all of the show, go take care of that, and we'll be in this Kicking It Righteous. Buffy said if you talked enough, I'm allowed to kill you. Not even. Even. Let's go on patrol. In Showtime, we open at the bus station, where an understandably nervous black girl named Rona gets off the bus and heads for the payphone. A bringer attacks, and then Buffy shows up and kills it with its own bedazzled dagger. Buffy introduces herself and leads Rona away, talking about what Rona should do the next time she's attacked. Next time you're attacked? Whoa, whoa, next time? You saying I'm gonna get attacked again? Welcome to the Hellmouth. Back at the house, Kennedy is trying to talk Willow into getting into bed with her and talks about her privileged background. She wants to know about Willow's witchcraft, but Willow wants to get some sleep. Downstairs, Molly's telling the story of Annabelle to the new girls, Chloe, Eve, and Vi, like it's sleepover ghost story time rather than one of us got super killed story time. And Eve is not comforted. So the Slayer is supposed to protect us? Let her get killed? Buffy and the Scoobies sit down to talk about what might kill Cuthbert so she can save Spike. Once again, Eve speaks up, wondering why we want to save the vampire that's been killing people. It's complicated, Eve. Okay, see, there's this concept called delight armor. And in D&D terms, Spike has like plus 45 to delight armor, which means the writers literally cannot kill him or view any situation without valuing him above all others, regardless of any actual mission value that he might have. All right, well, if you're unfamiliar with D&D, Spike is to Buffy the Vampire Slayer as being a cishet able white man is to America, and... He's the one you're worried about helping? Well, we need him to... He's the one that's been... It's complicated, Chloe. I'm Chloe. She's Eve. Oh, whatever. You know what, Eve? Take a race and gender in media class. That'll explain all the reasons why Rona's so nervous in Sunnydale, too. Eve wants to know if there are any plans to keep them from dying, and Giles suggests going to talk to Beljox's eye, an oracle. Anya is not excited about this idea because they need her as an ex-demon to get them into the dark dimension where he lives. Buffy says please. Spike's running out of time. Back in the dungeon, Spike breaks free from his bonds and fights off a bringer, then runs through the catacombs only to bump into Buffy, who smiles at him. But then another slash of the whip and he wakes up, still tied to the wall, while first Buffy taunts him. While she talks, he closes his eyes and mutters to himself. She will come for me. No. I won't. Anya tries to bribe an old demon flame with sex to get him to open the portal to Beljox's eye. When that doesn't work, Giles threatens him with Slayer Retribution. The demon opens the portal and they go in and there's a big floating eye in a cage and... Okay. Back at the Summer's house, Buffy and Xander release Andrew and tell him they don't have time to babysit a hostage, but if he causes them any trouble, they'll go full misery on him. Willow gets a call from the coven seer in England, who saw that there's a potential hold up at a local motel. In the basement, the Slayers are trying to train to fight with minimal luck, while Eve wonders what the point even is. They'll just run through each one of us, one after the other. Kind of creepy, huh? All we do is wait around for each other to die. At the motel, Buffy and Xander break into the room and discover the dead body of Eve, which means that Eve in the house is not actually Eve. She's the first. And back at the house, she's freaking the potentials out, telling them that she doesn't think the Slayer can protect them. Back at the house, Andrew is trying to convince Dawn that he can also be helpful to the cause, bringing in all his mad evil genius skills to the fight, kicking it righteous, so to speak. Buffy said if you talked enough, I'm allowed to kill you. Not even. Even. Buffy busts in and goes to find first Eve in the basement with the potentials. She thanks the girls for the information, promises a visit from her friend that night, and pieces out. Meanwhile, Anya and Giles ask the Beljox's eye if he'll take over the exposition fairy duties for just a little while, and he says that the first is attacking now because the Slayer line has become unstable. 
Back at the house, the potentials are creeped out and wondering what to do. Buffy promises that Giles and Anya will return with the information they need. Buffy asks Willow to put up a barrier around the house, and if it gets in, they'll fight. The potentials wonder how in the world they're supposed to fight a vampire that can't be killed. While they argue amongst themselves, Buffy, Willow, and Xander go into the kitchen and look at each other in silence. Back in the dungeon, at sunset, First Eve commands Cuthbert to go kill them all, except one. We can presume that's Buffy. As Cuthbert runs off, First Eve morphs into First Buffy, who moves towards Spike to continue the torture. At the house, everyone gears up to fight as the bringers gather outside. Andrew asks for a weapon, saying he has the right to defend himself. Buffy hands him a fifth of holy water. Out in the hallway, Kennedy comes across Willow facing her fear by floating a candle. Heard this voodoo once turned into the big scary. Big scary Willow. That's something I'd almost like to see. No, you wouldn't. Night falls and Cuthbert and the bringers attack. Willow's shield holds Cuthbert back, but Willow can't keep it up for long. The shield falls and they run, everyone taking out bringers as they escape through the back door. Cuthbert chases them. In the alley, Giles and Anya come back through the portal. Anya says Buffy died before and it didn't destabilize everything, but Giles says it's because Buffy lives after dying that threw everything into chaos. No, it's our fault. The world would have been better off if Buffy had just stayed dead. Out in Sunnydale, the potential slayers are on the run. They stop and Buffy tells Willow and Xander to get the potentials to a safe place. She's going to try to get Cuthbert to chase her and she'll fight him. She smashes him in the face with the fifth of holy water to piss him off and then runs to the construction site for the new Sunnydale library where the potentials continue to freak out until Cuthbert finds them. Buffy turns on the lights and Willow leads the potentials to the scaffolding to watch as Buffy taunts Cuthbert, turning the tables as he growls at her. She says that she doesn't believe in monsters that can't be killed. I always find a way. I'm the thing that monsters have nightmares about. Right now, you and me are going to show them why. Buffy and Cuthbert fight while everyone watches, and we flash back to the scene where all the freaked out potentials were arguing. Buffy communicates telepathically with Willow and Xander, and they set up the plan. This was the plan. Showtime. Back at the site, Buffy gets the best of Cuthbert and beheads him with a chain, then looks up at the potentials as she wipes the dust off her hands. She speechifies for a minute, and everyone leaves, with First Eve watching them go, looking very unhappy. In the catacombs under the new library site, Buffy shows up holding a bringer knife. Spike thinks she's first Buffy, but then he realizes it's actual Buffy Buffy when she cuts his bonds. He starts to cry and leans on her as she leads him out. All right, Noelle, here we are, ready to talk about Showtime. Uh, And I'm just curious to know... What did you think about this episode? I like bits of it. I'm still loving the potentials. They're still just one of my favorite things about the show. But Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. We're kind of in the middle of things right now. So it's like little little bits of delight here and there, but not... I don't feel I don't feel super strongly about this episode, I guess. Yeah, it's not a really strong episode. It's it's again like, you know, we're in the middle of a season and always in the middle of a season. There tend to be like a couple of muddy episodes where we move pieces around the board and it doesn't feel like much is actually happening. Um, And this is one of those episodes like it's not. Like a bad episode. It's a notoriously bad episode. There are some good moments. But overall, it's just kind of a muddy middle episode. So, yeah. 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 But we get this like, here's how the world is different, right? Like the the eyeball oracle or whatever. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. You have a thing about this. I'm going to let you do that. And then we'll talk. Then we'll talk about like the meaningful story shit. But you, okay. The All Beljox's right. eye is just, like a thing for you. The Beljox's eye makes me so uncomfortable. Um, okay, first of all, it's a big eye tumor in a cage. Doesn't it want to be free? It's just sitting there in this void in a cage. Um, but also, it's a big eye tumor in a cage in a windy vortex. You know how eyes do in the wind? Not great. Kind of sucks. And it's a big eye tumor in a cage in the middle of a windy vortex. And the cage has little hairs sticking inward. Did you notice that? Did you notice that the little hairs graze against the open eyes all the time every time it moves? Did you notice that? I mean... Uh. I did not clock the eye hairs. No. I was, uh. I was just fully in the 
in the I shrug, well, I guess okay, in the like it's a rat king eye that sees the present and the past, which I love. Ugh. Like the most helpful oracle ever, right? It's I mean, right. I guess it's not an oracle. And speaking. Anya's like, that's just memory. That's memory. You know, so that Everyone doesn't really that. help us. <laughs> right. But okay. But okay. So here is this eye, right? Yeah. Which is clearly being fucking tortured, right? Every minute of or every day something. sitting there yeah. waiting for people to show up and ask it questions so that it has something to do. But doesn't it want to be like, hey, I'll answer your questions if you get me the fuck out of here. And also, where is a good place for a fucking floating eye tumor demon like where where does that thing want to hang what is a good environment for that like nothing it's all eyes it's just ugh. i just so hate the world building around this demon <laughs> and the fact that it doesn't want to be free but you can see the inner cage hairs moving against its open eyeballs it's just ugh, ugh. okay <laughs> It's very, it's very upsetting, and I don't like it. <laughs> it very much feels like one of those ideas that somebody came up with and then just would not let go. Like, just... It- the, okay, the hairs on the inside of the cage are a choice. That didn't just happen. That didn't just... You don't make a cage a cage out of twine like you make it out of metal that doesn't have hairs if if the metal has hairs somebody put the hairs on the metal deliberately that's a choice i just i don't know i don't know what to do with it <laughs> i wear i wear contact lenses and maybe that makes me especially sensitive to like eye things but oh my god cuz if i get like an eyelash in my eye with the contact lenses, like it's all over. My day has ended. I've got to deal with that and then lie down. It's just, ugh, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's you know what? Also, also, I just had this realization. Mm. It's kind of a muppet, isn't it? Kind of a muppet. Oh, very much so. It's very right? very yeah. It's one hundred percent like. I've got severe Jim Muppet trauma. Creature shop. Like, <laughs> Jim it is nightmare. I mean, <laughs> it's not that. It's not that good, but it's that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just always. I'm just always surprised, not surprised by the decision of we're gonna make something that's just a bunch of eyes or like just a bunch of mouths. Like that's just the whole. Yeah. <sighs> bodies man yeah. i don't know <laughs> I, I don't know it's don't all know. it's all weird but let's go ahead and not spend any more time on my my weird squick with the <laughs> henson-esque nightmare yeah but <laughs> hensonian the nightmare hensonian nightmare okay there we go what is the content of so, that part of the what were your thoughts about okay that? so the whole like the whole reason for this weird interaction right is the yeah revelation that Buffy Mm -hmm. is the reason for the season, right? That Buffy (laughs) is the reason that all of this, Buffy is the reason that the first has shown up because, Mm -hmm. or in this way, because Giles is like, hey, if this thing is eternal, like, what's up? Why now? Um, Mm -hmm. And it's Anya who really spells it out for us when she says the world would have been better off if Buffy had just stayed dead. And mm-hmm. I like that. I like Anya working it out. I think that's pretty great, yeah. right? Like, mm-hmm. how dare some young woman come back from the dead? I mean, really, <laughs> you know? Yes, and young dead women are the best kind of women, right? right? Because right. they can't age and disappoint us. But um, yeah, the thing that confuses me about that, though, is that like it's not because Buffy died. It's because she lives like, OK, all right, that's that destabilizes the mystical universe or whatever. But she died and lived before. Like, right. you know, it's because she lives because of a mystical act that disrupted the because Willow's power disrupted. Like so. she was brought back by a mundane human means the first time. But that's also what gave us a second slayer in this whole world building of one girl in all the world, right. blah, 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 blah. Now there's two. Yeah. And that seems to me like that would have been a destabilization. I I don't like it doesn't really like if you look at it too hard, it doesn't really make sense. But well, there's so much on this show that if you look at it mm-hmm. too hard, <laughs> yeah, you're like, true. that doesn't 
that doesn't shake down at all. But what's Fair interesting enough. is mm-hmm. so this is all so we pin all of this on Buffy, right? It's because Buffy yeah. died and lives, but that was Willow who did that. Mm-hmm. It seems like Willow is the protagonist of the show. Because she's yes. the one who brought Buffy back from the dead, shook things up, doomed the world, and then she's the one who changes the rules and saves the day. So, yeah. I, I think there's a really good argument for that. We're definitely going to have a discussion about that when we get to the story section. Because um, I love that idea, and I think there's so much to unpack there. You're absolutely right. Um, but before we go into that, um, I kind of want to, I guess, I spend a little time with the unbearable whiteness of Buffy, which is shout out to Dr. Sharice Laprie, who coined that line for me. Um, I mean, we all know we've had this discussion. Buffy is an incredibly white show. This season, in trying to, I think, address that a little bit, shines a fucking light on it really, really hard. Like, you know, black characters die on this show, like usually pretty quickly. And I don't think we've had one speaking black character that has survived like an entire season. So even without potential status, making Rona a prime target for an Uber vamp, I don't blame her for being nervous, just getting off that bus in Sunnydale full stop, you know? Yeah. Um, but here we have Rona. I think Rona is a great character. I love her. Here I thought hungry was English for hungry. Like she's smart. She says the things like that other people are not really saying. Um, I'm glad she survives the season, you know, and the story continues (laughs) in the comic books. She continues. Um, In addition, this season, we get Robin Wood, you know, which is great. Although we spend a lot of time falsely speculating that he might be evil and that in isolation is fine like a black character can be evil like there are it's equal opportunity for the whole spectrum of interesting characters that you know that that black people can be and play uh but when you only have one speaking part for a black person and they're evil it can be a little bit you know a little bit uncomfortable and um you know we've got a bunch of these slayers, right? And they are default white from English-speaking imperialist countries. Um, the cold open potential in Turkey died in a single scene, so we just killed her right off. Um, and we're going to be revisiting this idea of the unbearable whiteness of Buffy when we get to the, uh, I mean, unforgivable treatment of Chao An uh, later in the season that's so, so terrible. Um so it, it feels to me like, you know, like many people, when they start to recognize what they've done wrong in areas of privilege, I, I guess the first step is to to continue to do it wrong, but in a different way, at least with some awareness. And so, like, that's what's happening this season. And this season gets really super uncomfortable. But when Rona gets off the bus in Sunnydale, I'm like, honey, I don't blame you. Sunnydale has been proven to be unsafe for people of color. Um, yeah, it's it's not great. But I love the character. Rona is wonderful. Ro- mm-hmm. Ro- I I love her. I love everything they give her to do. I wish she had more to do. She's yes. delightful. Um, She's wonderful. And yeah, yeah. We'll just, you know, yeah. I love her so much, but yeah, she's an interesting, like, as we try to diversify the potentials, we almost, it's almost this bright spotlight on, oh, yeah, this is a super, super white show. It's especially a bright spotlight. And oh, hey, guess what? We don't have above the line. Anybody who is gay or uh, people of color or from another, like, you know, yeah. from any other background. Um, and I think that that shows up at the same time. Like, it, you know, it's nice having some diversity, even if it's fumbled, at least we're moving in a direction. And people who are not white are getting roles and getting work. And I like that. So, you know, meh. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, you have this thing that you say all the time about like, this was clearly written by a straight man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, like, this is clearly written by white people. Like, it's just, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. This was, this was written by, I mean, 
characters of color written by white people. <laughs> we, this is why you need diversity and inclusion above the line. And, and that's starting to happen now in our storytelling. So I appreciate that we are moving in the right direction. And at least there's that. But yeah, we're going to have to have this discussion again throughout the season uh, because it does not get better. And I think you can say it gets actively, actively worse. Um, all right. So let's go into the story discussion, because I love this idea that you brought up. Um, is Willow the actual protagonist of Buffy the Vampire Slayer? And I think it's such an interesting idea because kind of, yeah, like if you look at what it is that makes a protagonist a protagonist, we've got basically three basic things, right? We see the story through their POV. They have an active personal goal and their pursuit of that goal moves the story forward, provides the motive force for everything that's going on. And uh, especially in the like latter parts of this series, like Willow has two out of three on this scale, you know, mm-hmm. um, Buffy is a reactive protagonist. She resists her calling. She resists her destiny. She resists that responsibility. I mean, understandably, but she's very resistant. The only time she actually actively enjoys being a slayer um, is in season three. And that's because what she's enjoying is faith, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. being with faith and that whole relationship. Right. Um, so Buffy, as a reactive protagonist, can be a bit of a problem. And we do see the story through her POV and she does have goals like, you know, in a season like to defeat whatever the big bad is. Um, But she resists everything. She resists herself. She resists her slayerness. She resists her destiny. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, she doesn't want any of this. She does it, but she has no choice in the matter. Like she is the slayer. So it's not even a choice. And choice is what makes a good character. What a character chooses tells us everything that we need to know about them. And like at the end of season two, when Buffy killed Angel, even after he'd come back, we learned a lot about who Buffy is through that choice, you know. Mm-hmm. But Willow is actually in pursuit of a goal like the magic, right? From season two on. So she's actively in pursuit of of a personal goal that means something to her, which is, you know, building up her abilities with magic. And her pursuit of that goal makes pretty much everything possible. She figures out how to beat the mayor in faith by stealing the pages from the mayor's books of ascension. She runs the magic that defeats Adam in season four. She is the only one who even hurts Glory in season five. And her magic takes the mental energy Glory was using and restores that to Tara. Season six is all about Willow pursuit of what Willow wants. And as you said, in this season, you know, she's the one who's able to do the magic. She's the one who ends this whole thing by restoring all of the potentials, bringing them all into the Slayer line um, by breaking this one girl in all the world bullshit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but and it brings me back to this repeating theme that we have talked about recently, especially I think since season six on that Buffy is usually the last character we talk about because Buffy yeah. is usually the least interesting. She's the most reactive. Um, The story has to go in, actively grab her and pull her out. She doesn't pursue anything. Things happen. She reacts to it. And then we, we tend to lose her as a character, even in her, you know, eponymous story. But Willow is almost always, we almost always got something to talk about with Willow. Yeah. Well, Buffy, when she's interesting, when she's most interesting, I think is when she's in, relationship with a man whether that's Mm -hmm. a whether that's a human man or a vampire man but there's always a there's always a usually a sexual romantic relationship there yeah whereas willow is much more in relationship with herself Mm -hmm. um and we i mean we'll see that in this season where it's sort of willow's willow's relationship to willow in season seven is very much like you need to get in touch with your sexuality and your magic again in a way that feels very written by a man. We'll get there in a minute. Mm-hmm. But but ultimately, ultimately, it seems to be about Willow's relationship with Willow, Willow's pursuit of magic, Willow's pursuit of knowledge um, mm-hmm. has always been, always struck me as being very much about Willow and what she wants and building up her sense of power Whereas Buffy is very much in relationship to other people. And because of the way that our television is often structured, that ends up meaning a romantic relationship with a guy. Mm-hmm. 
So she's not... Buffy is often not terribly interesting on her own. Um, Which is a whole separate discussion. But when we think about, like, point of view, I -hmm. just... And I have no idea where this idea comes from for me, but I suspect that if we were making this show now, Mm -hmm. it would be much more of a shared... We would have much more of a shared protagonist role with Mm -hmm. Buffy and Willow in relationship to each other as friends. And we would sort of build on that friendship love story that Mm -hmm. you've talked about with the two of them, you know, a lot, but that kind Mm -hmm. of falls away. It sort of comes into play when it's convenient um, with the show as we have it. But I think it would be really interesting to see, you know, maybe, maybe Buffy's resistance to her calling parallel with Willow's, pursuit of knowledge and power and how mm-hmm. compelling that could be as a as a story about women in power as a story about women in friendship um mm-hmm. i don't know i don't know it is it's interesting to me that we do often like buffy sort of falls away in the discussion of the show that is that has her name on about it her. yeah 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 um because as a character, she she is interestingly inconsistent, is maybe how I want to mm-hmm. say it. Yeah. 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 I don't but know. It's, I, I mean, find it really interesting that we end up every week, I'll be doing my notes and I'll realize that I haven't talked about Buffy because I'm just not interested in... And Buffy, really, like, what's going on with her is, and, and it may be because, like, that's a difficulty with, with writing a character who's experiencing depression, like, in season six, is that that's what depression does to you, is that you don't pursue anything, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that having a space to talk about that in a character um, is is valuable. Like, you know, it helps for us to be able to talk about those kinds of things that that hit and what that experience is. But because in in narrative, you really need your protagonist to be actively in pursuit of something, it can make writing a depressed character really, really difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of difficulty with that with season six, Buffy. But even in season seven, um, I don't know, like, I'm not I'm we're still like we still don't talk about but like the first character on our character sheet as we're talking about stuff is Kennedy. Yeah. Cuz yeah. Kennedy is in what? Active pursuit of a goal. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, Kennedy was a big cornerstone of our discussion last week because yeah. she shows up mm-hmm. and is immediately immediately right. they are doing a thing with Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And I still, I still like the idea of Kennedy. I really do. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. Kennedy is written to be more secure in her sexuality, mm-hmm. I think. And she also comes from a place of incredible privilege. Yeah. Which is what, which we see, I mean, it's spelled out very clearly for mm-hmm. us in this episode. Um, I was, I was actually texting my girlfriend about this last night. And she observed that Kennedy has a let's make all things visible attitude, Mm -hmm. which I thought was a really fascinating way of putting it, right? Like, show Mm -hmm. me a trick, Willow. Show me your queerness, Willow. Mm -hmm. And this episode takes a good solid, like, full minute, probably more, to spell out that Kennedy is rich and Willow is not. Mm-hmm. Um, my sweetie and I have very different experiences of socioeconomic class. And what she helped me pinpoint in this exchange is that wealth enables desire. Mm-hmm. Desire has never been a barrier for Kennedy. If she wanted something, she could have it. Yeah. So I don't read her as predatory or possessive. She doesn't ever touch Willow. She doesn't climb out of the bed or, you know, try to, like, get onto the floor with Willow, for example. Mm -hmm. But she has no concept of Willow's reality where access Mm -hmm. to both magic and desire are fraught. Mm -hmm. Kennedy has this really, really oversimplified worldview that she's able to have because of her socioeconomic status. Or at least that's the way that 
uh, that's it what I'm reading like into this piece yeah. of information about her. Like, why do we get mm-hmm. this information about her? And I think right. that the, the connection, the connection between wealth and access, I mean, is not subtle just in the world. Mm-hmm. But I think the connection between wealth and access to desire mm-hmm. is an interesting one. Um, I'm mm, I'm bothered by the extreme written by a straight personness mm-hmm. of there being zero acknowledgement of Willow's experience of being desired after losing the love of her life. I mean, that sh- that should just not happen. That should just not happen on a number of mm-hmm. of planes, uh, especially because exchanging life stories is lesbian second base. <laughs> but what I what I genuinely appreciate about Kennedy and the way that they are mm, setting her up mm-hmm. <laughs> on the show is that she's open to correction. Mm-hmm. She sees Willow's magic use as fun and new agey. And I love the old AG reply. Yeah, that no, I her. love it. Yeah. Until Willow explains the real deal. And then when Willow is putting up the magical barrier, Kennedy is the one to express concern for Willow's safety. It's hurting her. Mm-hmm. So she goes from like, this is fun. Show me a trick to, oh, I'm going to believe you mm-hmm. when you say that this is serious business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, Kennedy as a character suffers from an extreme case of written by a straight person, probably a man. Well, David Fury, Um, guilty on both parts. Yeah. Like, I really don't think she's all that bad. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But I'm going to keep I mean, I'm going to keep bouncing all the Kennedy stuff off my girlfriend because I think two gay women having a conversation about this character is about as much actual queer representation as we're going to get from Kennedy. I love it. Um, I love it. Yes. I I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I'm very, I feel, I, I feel complex feelings about this character. I like the idea of her. I think the intent is probably okay, but the impact is not so good. Yeah. Um, also, Willow's new love interest should have been Rona. Oh my God. I love Rona so much. Rona is awesome. Um, yeah, I still don't like Kennedy. Um, I don't like how entitled she is. Um, I don't like that she's not sensitive to Willow's discomfort. When she's causing Willow's discomfort, it's not a problem. But when the barrier and the magic is causing it, then suddenly she notices it. Um, and the fact that she doesn't physically jump on Willow, I feel, is like kind of a low bar um, of, of expectation for her. So, yeah, I still she still makes me uncomfortable. I don't like the way that she talks to the other potentials, Rona in particular. Um, yeah. I just I don't I don't like yeah. Kennedy in general, except there are a couple of things that I do appreciate about her. I like that she's strong and she's direct. I like that she speaks her mind. Um, I like that she's ready to fight. She's not all talk. She's absolutely ready to scrap and get into this. Um, so I I don't like the way that she bosses around the other potentials. I don't like the way that she like her her entitlement um, is, you know, and I do understand that like, you know, yeah, like when you come from a wealthy background like that, you are used to getting your way and getting things the way that they are. But it also feels like you're used to getting what you want, regardless of how it affects other people. So there, there's a lot about Kennedy that I don't like. I do grow to like her more in the rest of the season. So like, she's just, she suffers with me from a very, very bad first impression. I would like her to have sensitivity to all of Willow's discomfort, both physical, magical, and like personal, um, and kind of learn to respect those boundaries. That said, her ability to take correction is something that, that shows, you know, uh, that shows a willingness to be like to look at herself. And I do appreciate that. So there are things about Kennedy that I do appreciate. And I especially really love, you know, your queer perspective and your girlfriend offering these insights, which I appreciate. Thank you to uh, to Noelle's girlfriend as well, um, because I think that that does bring a little more, uh, you know, a queer representation to this discussion, which is really, really nice. I mean, it's, yeah, it's rough. I think, and it's interesting, you mentioned her bossing around the other potentials. And that also reads to me as very tied to class and the mm-hmm. access that she's had to, it sounds like all kinds of things because yeah. of how how wealthy her family is. I mean, she's been training. So, okay, so she somehow, 
<laughs> Here we go again, uh-huh. right into the, how does the world of the Slayers actually work? Yeah. Apparently, she's had access to weapons training since she was eight years old. That, so there's yeah. something, so is there something in her, like, how is it that this rich girl gets all of this Slayer, like, pre-Slayer training and knowledge, mm-hmm. whereas our, you know, well, Our poor black girl yeah. doesn't have a watcher. It's like, <laughs> you know, right. it's like, oh, guys, like race and class, like almost, you know, mm-hmm. almost well done. But I don't think you meant to be making a comment about. Yes. That. If it you, felt like an actual that, comment, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's it's slidey, right? right? Because we're at this place in. We're at this place in the season and in the the making of television where, you know, we we talked about this earlier, that we're trying to do more representation and really fumbling because it's still a bunch of it's still a bunch of white privileged people running the show. Right. But that mm, I like I do like I mean, like is not the right Mm -hmm. word, but I appreciate I appreciate the that angle of this girl with all of this access mm-hmm. thinks she knows more than she really does. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know. do, I do like, they do humble her as we move through the season, which I like, I mean, not a lot, but they do humble her yeah. a little, um, which yeah. I think is, is, is okay. But yeah, it's, um, it's, it's all uncomfortable. Like it's all, you know, a little, a little weird. Um, so I don't know. I just, I, I, Kennedy bothers me. I especially don't like the way she talks to the other potentials. Um, but moving on, uh, to Dawn and Andrew, um, I wanted to talk about this briefly because I do appreciate both of them in this, in this episode. Um, there isn't much Dawn, uh, but her exchange with Andrew is really awesome. You know, if he feels so alone, maybe he shouldn't have killed his best friend. Like she calls him out on that stuff. Um, she threatens yeah. to kill him, which I really quite like. She's also the one who, you know, notes that like all of the scared potentials don't really equal help in this particular instance, you know, when she's talking to Willow. Um, so I like all of this stuff. And I like that she's the one who gets Andrew to the first moment where he seems to step outside of his narrative and wrestle with actually what he's done. You know, when they talk about Jonathan, that's when he sort of starts to get real, you know, for like the first time. Um, And, and I do appreciate that. And I love that it's Dawn who brings that out. Like Dawn is going around just telling everybody what the fuck is up, you know, and it's really kind of nice. I like it. I love Dawn seeing everything so, so clearly. Mm -hmm. You know, with Andrew, Dawn, of course, is the one who figures out that Willow and Buffy set up this show for the potential. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dawn, Dawn gets it. Yeah. I mean, Dawn is over and over in this episode, especially, mm-hmm. is the one who's like, hey, this is what's going on. Right. And Dawn it's... wasn't pulled into their little mind meld session either. Like, yeah. you know, she was specifically left out of that and still figures it all out on her own. Yeah. This is not yeah. her first rodeo. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right. So what do you think about the first? Now we're seeing a lot more of the first. The first is trying on a lot more dead people. Um, yeah. yeah. I enjoy that the first is an equal opportunity mimic. <laughs> I really like that yeah. the first will just kind of show up as anybody. But I mean, Eve, really? Her name is short for evil? Right. <laughs> like, what are we doing here? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I like, I like that, mm-hmm. that idea of the first you know, infiltrating the house as mm-hmm. one of the potentials. Um, but I can't help but notice that the first shape shifts into a lot of women. Mm-hmm. And that's because we have a lot of dead women to work with. Wah, wah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just kind of, it's mm-hmm. a bummer. Mm-hmm. It's a bummer. Um, but I like, what I like about the first and its shape shifting is that it seems sort of playful Mm -hmm. like it's gonna shapeshift into eve for its minions just because Mm -hmm. they have no meaningful relationship with eve that i can imagine but i guess the first just wanted to do a terrible southern accent for a few minutes (laughs) (laughs) yeah that is what is 
what is it with this show and accent? I really? don't understand why they don't have a dialect coach budget, but they clearly do not. We have seen this from the beginning through, uh, you know, Angel as Liam, his terrible, terrible Irish accent uh, whenever they do those flashbacks. Um, but this Southern accent, like, and I double checked with uh, with chipperish host uh, Dr. Kelly Jones uh, because she is legit from the South. And I was like, okay, this is a terrible Southern accent, correct? Because I... I am I am terrible with accents. I am a horrible, horrible actor. I can't do accents at all. And so when I hear them, I'm like, I think that that's terrible, but maybe I'm wrong. Like, I don't have an ear for it. Uh, but Dr. Kelly Jones did confirm for me that, yeah, no, that's truly, truly awful, like laughably bad. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why, because there's no real reason why Eve had to be southern except to like distinguish her from all the other white girls like i'm not really sure like what that is about um it's yeah yeah a bunch of a bunch of white people with white people accents is faux diversity exactly yeah no it really is it really is um but it's 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 a bad and the thing is like we had the the character last week annabelle doing this british accent that was also truly truly terrible um and the thing is that i'm bad at accents so if i can spot a bad accent like it's (laughs) bad i didn't even notice how bad angel was until everybody else pointed out and i'm like yeah i guess that is a bad irish accent i don't know i I'm bad at hearing that. Like, you know, people just sound how they sound. But when it's really, really bad that I can pick it up, like it's super bad. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what that was about. Um, so moving on to Willow, though, um, I'm really enjoying what they're doing with Willow. Um, she's spending a lot of this season, you know, facing her fear, uh, which we brought into actual text. She's holding the candle and saying, I'm facing my fear. So um, it's a really nice <laughs> arc for her. And, you know, and Kennedy is challenging her in the realm of getting back into a romantic relationship, which I think is actually a nice role for Kennedy, even though I don't like the way that she does it um, because she doesn't seem to consider, you know, how Willow is feeling about all this stuff. Um, But one of the things that I had a question about is like, is, is Willow like able to like read thoughts? Is she hearing people's thinking all the time? Um, yeah, yeah, because Buffy says, Willow, can you hear me? And telepathy is not a Slayer power. It's a Willow power. So Willow's got to have a mind radio going like all the time. It feels really weird and invasive. It does. It's like magical, like, I don't know, malware or something like what? And then Xander is able to talk with both of them mm-hmm. through telepathy. I don't understand. It's funny because I love that moment. I love it so much. Yeah. And I love Xander going, what? Out loud. <laughs> then, because of course but, he does. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, lo- I love it. But yeah, you're right. It makes fuck all sense. It's weird. It makes no sense. It's just weird that they can because like Willow is able to step into other people's brains and communicate. We've seen her doing that since the beginning of season six, right? Where she just uses her mental telepathy and actually, but this one is initiated by Buffy. And yeah. so that that felt a little bit weird. But um, but this whole setup. Is it just like the Wi-Fi password? How like if I've been various places, my phone will like remember? I, I that it maybe knows the pa- like is it like what is happening? Uh, uh, but I like right. it. I like I it like too. It so much. I like the setup. I like that they you know step into the other room and we see that, and then it isn't until the middle of the fight with Cuthbert. Oh, by the way, R.I.P. Cuthbert. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, yeah. It isn't until the fight with Cuthbert that. Um, that we have the flashback and we hear them talking and we hear them thinking and planning this whole thing out that I've got to kill this thing and they've got to see me do it, you know? So they have this whole plan. And then Xander of course knows just the place because it's a construction place and also just happens to be, I guess, right above where, uh, where they're keeping spike or whatever. Cause this is the construction site where Buffy, um, had her first run in with Cuthbert, I believe. Um, but anyway, so, uh, so Buffy drags them all out there, right? Do this big production. She turns on all the lights. She's like, I'm going to kill this dude and you're going to watch me. And then she just takes his head off with a chain, which I thought, you know, points for originality, right? You know, beheading, if beheading doesn't work on this thing, it's at least going to slow it down. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was it was really kind of a fun, you know, I mean, they call it showtime. It was a fun little show, you know, the way that she pulled all of that off and made that happen in this super dramatic way. And then, of course, gives them a nice speech at the end while she's wiping the dust off her hands. Yeah, it feels... I'm I can't quite decide how I feel about it though mm-hmm. in this like I have to perform slayerness for this group of mm-hmm. doubting potentials. Yeah. Like I don't I don't know. It's right on this it's right on a line mm-hmm. for me of like manipulation for the greater good. That I guess I mean I, yeah. And also yeah. Like, I don't think it's inherently problematic, but it does kind of it feels a little bit icky Mm -hmm. to me in a way that is probably about me. Um, Well, it increases the danger that they're in. Right. Because we we have this whole thing where Willow holds the barrier, but then she deliberately lets it go. But all these girls are running out through throngs of bringers that also have shown themselves to be fairly effective potential slayer killers. You know, with their bedazzled knives, which are very, very special. Um, So it it feels like in order to do this performance, she is deliberately putting these girls into greater danger. Um, So it just it does. It feels like I think the performative aspect of it when when there's a real risk that you know, that they're going to get, at least one of them is going to get seriously hurt, if not killed, in the in the process of setting up this performance. It wasn't like she was like, hey, you guys go wait there, you know, be safe, get out of the house. And like, but it, it is all about this performance. And it seems like Willow can hold that barrier, but deliberately lets it go, you know, because that's the whole point yeah. is that we've got to have Cuthbert chasing us. Um so yeah, I don't know. The whole thing there is a there is a bit of that which feels like it's it's putting these young people in danger, in additional danger for the purpose of performance. Yeah, when you're not a hundred percent sure that this is gonna work yeah. out. Yeah. I mean, Buffy's been, you know, spanked by this guy a couple of times, you know. Um so yeah. At the same time, you know, the end, it's, it's, you know, it's fun. Like here she sh- kills this guy and she's like, I can kill him. He can be killed. We're going to do this. We yeah. can do this, you know? And she yeah. is, she has that inspiring thing at the end. And then we get, you know, this moment with Spike, we have Spike just cool in his heels. Buffy will come for me. Buffy will come for me. Buffy will come for me, yeah. you know, um, which I think is, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's Spike having faith, which I think is great. Yeah. Um, and then at the end, when she comes in, like, it reminds me of that moment when he sees the Buffy, when he sees what he thinks is Buffy bot coming down the stairs and bargaining at the beginning of season six. And there's that moment of realization that James Marsters pulls off so beautifully when he realizes that, it's not Buffy bot. It's actual Buffy coming down the stairs and his amazement. And here we have, you know, expecting the first Buffy and we get to kind of have a redux of that moment. And Marsters is amazing at that shit. It's so good yeah. when he realizes it's her and he starts to cry and you see him just break. I love that. Yeah. And I love I I kind of love Spike as like the the not the damsel in distress, but mm-hmm. the, you know the the vamp bro in distress he is, like he's yeah. he's just there to be rescued mm-hmm. and he's just there to keep the faith that she will come for him i love that when yeah. he's saying he's whispering she will come for me she will come for me and the first as buffy says no, no i won't i which won't is, yeah side note i freaking love sarah michelle geller as the first just every time sarah michelle geller time. is amazing so mm-hmm. good so good as the first yeah um, i love her doing evil and i love too that when she's evil as the first she's almost always wearing white you know yeah. which yeah. which takes that classic 
you know, visual symbol of purity for whatever that's worth. It's gross even just to say it. But, but, you know, we use, (laughs) we use white as, as a, you know, shorthand for positive goodness, all of this kind of stuff. And then whenever she is the first, she's always wearing white, you know, and I kind of like that subversion with that. Yeah. Yeah. The first is, I mean, it's, it's conniving, but it's also, it's playful. Yeah. It likes, it likes the production mm-hmm, of it. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's very flashy. It's, it's really into think, the performance, yeah. you know? It is. Yeah. It is. Which I guess if you couldn't, if you weren't corporeal, mm-hmm. if you could just be whatever, mm-hmm. yeah, you'd get like really into the set dressing of it. Yeah. Or at least I would. Yeah. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, That's what I'm going to do today. I think it's awesome. Um, all right. So here we are. The end of showtime. What's your favorite part? It's Rona's face when Buffy tells her she is safe in Sunnydale. Yeah. It's just my absolute favorite. <laughs> just the whole, like, just the weight of everything crosses her face. And she's just the, the oh, hell no-ness mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. that moment just delights me yeah it's really I, I i love rona so much and when buffy hands her a sword she's given me big sword lesbian vibes ah. just in time for pride month ah. so you know <laughs> I very love happy yeah yeah rona's very happy great. what about you what's your favorite part oh god when spike realizes it's actual buffy coming to save him just the look on his face it's one of my favorite things and it's it's just like in bargaining that was i'm i can't remember but i will bet you anything that was my favorite part of bargaining it's my favorite part of showtime If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, follow at Chipperish on Twitter and use the hashtag #StillPretty. Or as a Patreon supporter at any level, you can join the Chipperish Discord group and chat live with other listeners and the hosts. Patreon supporters are getting exclusive content like Let's Watch Roulette, where Ian Martin from Passion of the Nerd and I react to a randomly chosen movie or TV show for $5 and up supporters, while $10 and up supporters get to hang out with us. They attend the show recordings. We chat about it afterwards. It's always really fun. So that is a great way to uh, to hang out with us. Uh, we've also got a new stretch goal. Once we hit 500 subscribers, we're going to unlock the monthly chip chat where I will host a private one hour Zoom call open to every supporter to talk about whatever every month. So if you haven't pledged your support yet, now is definitely the time. Speaking of supporters, this episode of Still Pretty was brought to you by the Chipperish Media Producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Still Pretty is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jonathan, Kevin, Kristen, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stefania, and Stephanie. And this week's special message for our power producers, can you help us out with something a little more demon-y? While you're waiting for the next episode of Still Pretty, here are some things you can do. Write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or keep the chatter down, or speak up so I can hear you. We will be back next time with Potential, the 12th episode of Season 7. Until then, how's evil taste? A little chalky. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.